Uh, we're on week two of 12. I showed you, uh, sh showed you this book last week and I'll keep showing it. It's by Richard Foster. The title's Celebration of Discipline, but the subtitle is you know, very instructive to me, The Path to Spiritual Growth. And I encourage you to picture the circuit training part of the gym where you go learn one machine and you, you, you figure out how, that, how to use that one right and then you work on, you, you move on and learn how to use another machine. And so we'll be developing different spiritual disciplines over the uh, next 12 weeks. And I strongly encourage you to, to practice each one the week that we're doing it. I mean, these are, these are activities for a lifetime. Uh, they're not something you learn once and try once and then they go away. But they're common to Christian disciples for 2,000 years. Uh, you can read uh, medieval believers who do these things. Uh, some of them seem kind of out of fashion in our world today, but they're biblical, they're appropriate, they're time-tested, and they work. Uh, they're classical disciplines, Richard Foster calls them. Uh, they come in three categories. The inward disciplines uh, we're studying this month, meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. Uh, we did meditation last week, prayer this week, and then we'll move on. Uh, in October, we'll be studying the outward disciplines, simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. Those are the ones that sound most medieval to me, but I think we'll find that they're, they're ap applicable for today as well. And then uh, the, what seem like the more fun ones, the corporate disciplines, are confession, worship, guidance, and celebration, and we'll get to those in November. So last week, I offered you some practice, and let's do a quick review. Um, I told a story in the first service. I'll repeat it now. Just... Uh, I've told this a bunch of times, but uh, we've got some new folks who may, may not have heard it yet, so we'll, uh, we'll go back. When I was a kid, um, we would go to church Sunday morning and Sunday night, and Wednesday night too. And Sunday morning we'd go to Sunday school and then the worship service. And Sunday night we'd go to, they called it training union or church training, and then also another worship service. And in my church there would be about 500 at the first service, I mean at the, the morning service, and maybe 150 at the uh, evening service. But there was a few years there when I was in elementary school where the Demings didn't miss. You know, we did, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, we were always there. And our pastor would do this thing where he would say, on Sunday morning, I'm going to teach on John chapter 12 tonight. Go ahead and read that thing this afternoon if you have a chance, and we'll, you'll be ready when I talk about it tonight. And then at the Sunday night service, he'd say, so how many of you read John 12? And there'd be a smattering of hands go up. They'd, re they'd read it. And I don't know exactly how to explain this if my pastor perceived there was some dishonesty. It seems to me like he had a little bit of a mean streak to do this. But one Sunday he said, uh, I'd like for you all to read uh, John, uh, Mark chapter 17 for tonight because that's what I'll be teaching on at the service tonight. And some of you already see where this is going. Uh, Sunday night he said, okay, who read Mark 17 because that's what I'm going to teach on. A few hands went up. And then I was shocked and horrified when he said, well, that's interesting because Mark only has 16 chapters. And he just set this trap and uh, you know, a handful of people walked into it, I guess who were clearly wanting to impress the people next to him more than impress God. And their attempt to impress the pastor surely backfired. And so I remember just, I was probably 10 or 11 when this happened, but it, you know, it, it's, it's so memorable because it just seemed to me like a, such a horrible way to be outed for your dishonesty right in front of everybody. Um, so... Anyway, I'm not going to do that. Um, I was thinking about saying, well, who did the practice last week? But I don't want to set that trap for you. Um, but uh, maybe you could nod if you uh, just quietly from where you are if you tried any of these things. The four things I, I encouraged you to try, and I tried, I, I tried to get you to try something new this week. 
was first of all meditation upon scripture. And for many of you, that would be old news. If you've ever done any kind of meditation, that's you know, what we would call a devotion or a quiet time where you open a passage from the Bible and ask the Holy Spirit to, to make that real and alive in our own lives. That's the meditation upon scripture. That's probably the most traditional for the people in this room. The palms up, palms down is, I've typed it backwards again. It's palms down, palms up. Um, that's the, the medieval discipline of centering down or what the Quakers called, uh, I can't remember what the Quakers called it, but uh, uh, the Quakers used it a lot. Oh, maybe the Quakers called it palms down, palms up. But it's the idea of picturing, physically picturing, what is it that's getting you? What is it that's, uh, that you're obsessing over that you can't let go of? It could be you worry about your kids. It could be worry about money. It could be you know, anger at your dad or bitterness against your arch enemies or whatever. You know, if, and physically picture turning your palms down and releasing that thing, letting go of it, relinquishing control of that situation because you can't control it anyway. And I'm going to physically watch myself let it go. And, and, then, and then here's the key part because Eastern meditation often focuses on detachment without any kind of attachment. But it's not good enough to empty our minds unless we turn the palms back up and let the Lord fill them. Uh, Lord, now what would you have to replace that thing I've been obsessing over? Holy Spirit, fill me with your truth. Show me what you'd have me to, to meditate on instead of that thing I just let go of. And then meditation upon creation. This is the reason I think a, 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 some outdoor location is a good place for meditating. Uh, somewhere where I can see the, something green or I can hear the birds instead of you know, listening to the chirp of the electronic equipment in, our, in the living room. Um, and then meditation upon contemporary events. This is the one, this is one I've been doing a, a good bit more lately than, 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 than usual. I'm thinking about <laughs> things that are way beyond my control, uh, uh, political things and world situations and stuff like that. And uh, um, yeah, I don't know what, where God's taken me with that, but I've been pondering some of that stuff in kind of a new way. Today we're going to talk about prayer, though. And I encourage you, if you didn't do the meditation one, it's not too late, but I encourage you to try to keep up because we're going to do a new one each, each week for, for three months here. And so I think it'll be easier if you try to practice the new one the week we talk about it. Prayer is the key to the other disciplines because it brings us into communion with God the Father. So as we go through this series, if you find you're struggling with one, go back to, to prayer and then see if that'll help you unlock the other ones. William Carey, the missionary to India, said that prayer, secret, fervent, believing prayer, lies at the root of all personal godliness. See, prayer changes things. Everybody knows that. You've seen the slogan on people's bumper stickers and such. But the one that I can guarantee you, the change I can guarantee is that prayer changes you. Um, the circumstances that you're praying about may not change or may not change in the way you want them to. But if you commit yourself to a life of prayer, you will change. And that's something I can promise. As we get closer to God, what happens is we find it easier to see our own need for him, and we find that, that we develop more of a desire to be Christ-like. James 4.3 says, When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. So how do we gain those right motives so, that we can, so our prayers will be answered? Well, we need transformed passions, and prayer gives us the ability to see life through God's point of view, rather than through my own selfish point of view. Instead of, you know, what do I really want? Do I want what I want, or do I want what God wants? And you know, before I start praying, I just want what I want. And, and I don't think I'm alone in that. But, but prayer will change my heart to where ultimately, 
by the time I'm finished, I want what God wants. And, and, may, and sometimes I'll be able to see through prayer that those two hadn't lined up before. Prayer is a top priority for the people of God, and this is seen throughout scriptures. Mark 1.35 says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, <clears throat> and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, people often read a passage like this, and it turns into a guilt trip, and there are several opportunities for you to take off into a little path of false guilt today, and I encourage you not to do that. Uh, this scripture doesn't say that Jesus stood up on the mountain and said to his disciples, if you want to be close to God, you've got to get up early in the morning, and you've got to go off and pray um, all by yourself. Leave the house. Uh, I don't think that's a bad idea. Jesus did it. It's good enough for Jesus, good enough for me too. But that's not what this passage teaches. Um, it's a good opportunity for me to remind you. There are really three kinds of scriptures that you read in the Bible, or we can divide them into three categories. Prescriptive, proscriptive, and descriptive. Now, prescriptive, that's like a prescription. You go to the doctor, he gives you a prescription, take this and you'll get better. So a prescriptive passage would be, do this and it'll work better for you. Like, uh, Bible says to be grateful in all things. Bible says to honor your parents. Bible says love God, love your neighbor. These are prescriptive passages, prescriptions that the Bible gives us for how to live our lives. Proscriptive are prohibitions. It's just the opposite. You know, don't lie, don't steal, don't kill, you know, the things that we're not supposed to do. And the Bible plainly says that there are some things that we're to avoid if, uh, in our discipleship walk. Descriptive, lots of things happen in the Bible that are narrative. The Bible uh, includes lots of stories. And so when you read about Abraham moving from Ur of the Chaldees to Canaan, that's not a command for all of you to go on a pilgrimage from Ur to Canaan. It's just a description of his journey. And so... This is one of those descriptive passages where it shows us how Jesus got in tune with God the Father and how Jesus was able to do the things he did. Now, the difference is, and the trick of this, is when it's Jesus instead of Abraham, then it does carry much more weight, right? Since the early church fathers all the way through now, we believe that not only are the words of Jesus instructive for us, but also his actions are instructive for us. Because what's our goal? Our goal is to be more Christ-like. And so if I can find a real practical way to do what Jesus did, like, like to get baptized. You know, did Jesus have to get baptized for the remission of his sins? Well, no. But he sure set an example, didn't he? Uh, and so if, if, for, if no other reason than he did it, that, that's a good reason for me to do it. Uh, so, so I encourage you, if you've never tried it before, try getting up early some morning and, and, and going off by yourself to pray. And for people who've made that a habit, I've heard some really cool testimonies about what happens during those times. This is a, uh, Walter and I had a God sighting this morning. Uh, every once in a while, I'll communicate to him about the message in the scriptures, and I'll think, this one reminds me of a song. Can you, could that one be ready for this Sunday? That did not happen this week. And so it's kind of an interesting surprise to both of us when I read Psalm 63.1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Well, that was the first song that uh, the worship team sang at the first service and the second service, and we didn't have that communication. And it's one of those times where it kind of affirms to me that the Holy Spirit's working on you know, two different people independently, because I got a lot of psalms I could have read uh, that would illustrate this point, but uh, it's really cool to me that the one that... that that I chose, I thought all on my own, but maybe with the Holy Spirit's prompting, was matched up with the song that Walter chose, evidently with the Holy Spirit's prompting. I think that's pretty cool. 
Jesus made it a priority to pray. David made it a priority to pray. The early church made it a priority. Here's a story from Acts that illustrates how much of a priority they made it. Um, Acts chapter 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. This is a temptation that shows up in any ministry. Any minister is tempted to, to at sometimes to neglect prayer in order to focus on the, the work or the people. And, and you know, it's, it's well-intentioned, but, but the example of the early church shows that it's not okay to neglect prayer in order to get the job done. This is particularly hard for me because my own temperament's a little more Martha than Mary. Um, I'm, I'm more comfortable doing than praying quite often, and so I have to, I have to discipline myself to, to pray first and act second. So here's how they solved it. Verse 3. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. So instead of messing with the food, they decided they were, that it was more important for them to focus themselves on prayer and the ministry of the word. I felt a little personal conviction on this. I, uh, um, at the first service, we had a couple of visitors who were here for the first time, and I didn't get to say hi to them before the service. It wasn't until after the service because I was busy messing with the coffee. Um, before. So that was a very Martha uh, thing for me to be doing instead. Although I told that story in the first service, <laughs> and one of the visitors came up to me afterwards and said, you know, my coffee maker broke at home this morning, and I so appreciate you messing with that coffee before I got here, because I was really glad to have it. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it'll work out. I'm not making an announcement here. I'm just thinking out loud about, you know, how I can deal with this in my own life. Foster cites the example of several giants in ministry, giants in prayer. And I could tell you their stories, but I think I won't, because I think this would be a place where we'd walk down the path of false guilt. But if you hear the stories of Martin Luther and John Wesley and David Brainerd and George Fox and Adoniram Judson and John Hyde, and the hours and the priority they made of prayer, uh, it would be easy to, to, to just compare ourselves to them and find ourselves lacking. Um, and that's, that's not my goal here. My goal is to encourage you, to exhort you, not to beat you down for not being as good as these guys. But the point is, we tend to think of them because of their accomplishments, but I think in the heavenly economy, their accomplishments followed their devotion to prayer, not the other way around. These weren't guys who said, I'm going to do something great for God, and I'll pray when I get a chance to. Um, they made prayer a priority, and then God used them to accomplish things that we now recognize as great things for the kingdom of God. But don't despair. Don't use their example to beat yourself up. If, if you're an occasional jogger, it wouldn't be a good idea for you to expect to finish a marathon next week. Yet, if you trained for it a little bit along the way, you, you might find yourself ready. And God wants to meet you where you are and bring you along this journey and walk with you along this journey. So how are you going to do it? Why are you going to do it? How, why should you expect that it even works? It's, it's, it's a little bit unfathomable to me that a finite, mortal, sometimes small-minded person like me could expect to connect with an infinite, eternal God, and then things happen because of that. It seems even a little arrogant, wouldn't you say, that I might have the ability to, to maneuver God um, with, with my puny little prayers. And yet the Bible teaches that we're, we're to pray boldly. So my encouragement is that we, 
that we go to the school of prayer. Uh, Foster recommends a, a book by Andrew Murray called With Christ in the School of Prayer. And I've got a couple other recommendations, because in a teaching like this where we're going through the disciplines, I'm just going to be able to scratch the surface today. I, we could do a whole 12-week series on prayer. Um, our intercession team studies prayer every Tuesday night at the Luce home, and so if this whets your appetite, I know a place where you can get it uh, satisfied. Also, on Wednesday night during the worship service, a few weeks ago, Rick uh, Luce did part one in a workshop on prayer, and that's designed ultimately to lead us to not just being more committed in our personal prayer lives, but also praying for people here at church on Sunday morning. Uh, and we, it was the, the one we did a couple weeks ago was an excellent teaching, and, and we followed it up with a, just a sweet time of, of uh, receiving prayer from Rick and Susie. And the next one of those is a week from Wednesday, not this coming Wednesday, but a week and a half away. And so I encourage you to come out for that and, uh, and, and learn from those sessions. But where we're going to start, <clears throat> today we're just getting an overview really from Foster's perspective, and, and we're going to start with Jesus. Um, but before we get into that, I want to just say there's a fundamental presupposition in our world that we really have to overcome. And this is, this is one of those times, I think, in a subtle way where our world's infected our thinking, and even sometimes it creeps into the church. And, and the, the thing I want to talk about is materialism. Now, that word means two different things. I'm not talking about consumerism, the keeping up with the Joneses. I've got to have a better car, bigger house, you know, nicer clothes because the lady I work with has nicer clothes, that kind of thing. I'm not talking about that kind of materialism. I'm talking about something more fundamental than that, the idea that mater the material world is all that there is. You know, since the Enlightenment, there's been sort of this scientific at this attitude in the scientific committee, uh, community that if you can't, touch it, taste it, feel it, experiment with it, then it just ain't so. That there's no, there's no supernatural, there's no, there's no life beyond this. And of course, if, as part of a Christian community, we, we deny that fundamentally. You know, we believe the Bible, we believe in a God who created the universe, we believe that Jesus raised from the dead in a supernatural way and that he lives. And, and that affects our belief about eternity but the question I have is, does it really affect your belief about today? And I think that this is a place where if we're not careful, the materialism of the world can creep in. And I think some of us are tempted not to pray like we should, because down deep, we're not sure we believe it's going to do any good. And so that's, I, I deny that. The scripture denies that. I believe it is going to do some good. And I encourage you to, to, to try it more aggressively um, and taste and see. And so my, my point is not that we're stuck. My point is that if we're not careful, we can, we, you know, this, this attitude that we can touch the creator and influence him swims upstream against the tide of our society. And yet I'm encouraging you to, to, to take that swim. So let's go to school with Jesus. Luke 11, 1 says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. So we need to learn about prayer, and let's start by learning from Jesus. Foster tells a funny story that he went through the Gospels and copied and clipped all of the teachings of Jesus on prayer and put them together so he could read them all in one sitting. 
Now this would be real easy for us today. We could use Bible Gateway and cut and paste. And we, what we'd find if we looked at the teachings of Jesus, we could learn some things about prayer. One of the things that Foster learned was that Jesus was much bolder in his prayers than, than we are. When he prayed for someone to be healed, you know, he didn't do that sort of wimpy cop-out uh, that I often do, where, Lord, if it be your will, you know, heal this guy. Um, and why do I do that? Because, you know, I don't know. I'm not all that confident, probably. But, but Foster thinks that Jesus was so in tune with God's will that he knew in advance it was God's will to heal or to feed or to do this miracle or that miracle before he even asked for it. Now, I'm definitely not there yet. But <clears throat> there are situations where I think it definitely is appropriate to ask for God's will, and, and, but, but not when we're praying for something we know God always, all, already wants to do. I'll, give you an, I'll try to give you an example. I think I said that in a confusing way. If I'm asking God to give me a more fervent prayer life, I don't think I need to give a disclaimer for that, right? If it's your will. Well, I know it's his will. God, help me to love you more if it's your will. Well, no, I know it's your will. Now, when should we ask for God's will? When we want guidance. You know, God, show us how to do this. Or the, the example that Jesus gave us in Scripture is when we're praying a prayer of relinquishment. Jesus relinquished control of his life according to God's will. In Luke 22, 42, the night before he was crucified, he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Here's an example of this in my life. If I could get my way, my kids would live closer. You know, my daughter especially, she lives in San Francisco. And so what I like, what I would like is, you know, for her to be, you know, closer to this side of the country, or at least, you know, close enough I could drive there on the weekend or something like that. But what's my official prayer? You know, God, she was yours before she was mine. And God, I know that you want what's best for her and that you could take care of her in a way, you know, much, much better than I can. What I want is what's best for her. What I want is God's will to be done, not my will in, in, in her life. And so that's a prayer of relinquishment where that's appropriate. So when we go to the school of prayer, let's start with Jesus. Look at the lives of the Old Testament guys who were known for a life of prayer, like guys like Moses or Hannah or David or Elijah. Um, you ever seen any books on prayer? There's a ton of them. I've got, I've got probably 100 in my personal collection of books about prayer uh, that you could read. But most importantly, I think you should practice. And then a very practical suggestion is I recommend that you journal. And one easy way to do this is just with a little notebook and two columns. And I, I would recommend that you, you write down your prayers, especially when you're asking God for something, and put a date there. And then the hard part that I think would be very effective is try to be faithful to go back and record the answers and also with the date there. And I think it will build your faith and encourage you to keep going if you can see God answering your prayers. Now, God answers prayers a couple different ways. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says yes, and then my least favorite, sometimes he says wait, uh, which is sometimes the hardest one to chew on, but, uh, but those are all answers. And, and if we record our prayers, then I think, and, and the answers, I think that'll build our faith and encourage us to keep going. P.T. Forsyth says that prayer is to religion what original research is to science. And so this is a way, now I've let this scientific materialism creep in, this is a way for you to experiment and see how effective your own prayers are. John 15, 7, uh, in John 15, 7, Jesus said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Well, I encourage all of you as we go to the invitation time today, or when we go to the invitation time, ask for a more effective prayer life. You think it's God's will to answer that prayer? I, I, I assure you that it is. And so 
Jesus said, if we're going to remain in him, we can ask whatever we wish. Well, let's choose to ask for that today. And, and just imagine how your lives would change, how this community would change, how this church would change if we fervently prayed that prayer and watched God answer it for us. Understanding that we need to learn to pray and that we're not all expected to be experts at this right away, it ought to ease some of the burden for you. This isn't, this should, should I hope that'll keep you from giving up. I hope that'll keep you from beating yourself up with false guilt. I'll, I'll give you an example. What if you go home from church today and your computer won't work? Would your conclusion, and this could be a real life example for many of you, maybe it happened last week. Would you just give up on computers? Um, at the first service, Jared said, yeah, I'm ready to give up, but uh, I don't really think he means that. Um, our, we've all had that experience where it just wouldn't work. And what do you do? Just, well, these computers, they're, they're just not reliable. I'm not gonna waste my time on that. And what, what would we do? We'd look for the disconnect, right? You'd check the cables, you'd call tech support. If it was, if it was broken enough, you'd just replace it, wouldn't you? We wouldn't give up on the idea, what do we do if we find that our prayers seem blocked, or they seem ineffective? Are we gonna give up on the practice, or are we gonna look for the disconnect? And with us, it's very easy to get disconnected when we're trying to pray. We live in a world that competes for our attention in a bazillion different ways. Um, science fans know this, that there are radio waves and, tel and television waves flowing through this room even now. That's true, right, engineer guys? Yeah, I read it somewhere. I don't, that's beyond my ability to comprehend, but uh, the guy that wrote it seemed to know what he was talking about, so, so I, I believe it. But I've been repeating it, kind of wondering. Uh, uh, so if that's true, there are radio waves coming through here now. Why are you not hearing that? It's because you're not tuned into that. Right? Many of you, in fact, are tuned in to me right now, which is kind of nice, and it seems like most of you are. Um, we have a similar thing happening in our spiritual lives where I want to be tuned in to God, but as I flip the tuner of, of, my, of my mind, um, I can think of three stations that actively compete for my attention. They're, the Bible names them as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world, so many of the things we believe and so many of the things we value and prize, you know, swim upstream from the world's values. And my own flesh wars against me. You know, my own flesh doesn't mind getting up early in the morning now, but gosh, when I was in my 20s, the idea of getting up early to pray, oh, my, my body would have battled against that idea. And, and uh, uh, we do have an enemy. You, we, we have an enemy who doesn't want us to have this kind of communion with God. And so what, how are we gonna tune those out and tune God in? Well, well that's gonna come with practice. I think we really, we, sometimes we have to actively tune out the other stations in order to tune in God. Soren Kierkegaard said it this way, a man prayed and at first he thought that prayer was talking. In fact, so many of us think it's that way, right? Like God's our Santa Claus, except instead of a bunch of toys, we got a list of people we want him to heal or situations we want him to fix, right? That's, prayer's just one way. God, I want you to do this and this and this, and then, you know, amen, goodbye. And I'll, I'll tell you next time I need some help. And, and that kind of prayer relationship with God is, is, is just so incomplete, and it's why we feel so unfulfilled. But let's read the rest of what Kierkegaard said. He became more and more quiet until in the end he realized that prayer is listening. Listening to God is a prelude to intercession. So what are we going to pray for? Oh, I'll rush through the end. We're going to pray for your need. You should pray for your needs. Uh, 
Jesus talked about praying for your daily bread. Pray for your children and the children of others as you see, as you see the need. You know, we dedicated a baby in here a couple weeks ago. His name was Miles Levy. Um, I wonder, again, no show of hands, ha have you prayed for Miles? We committed to pray for him uh, during that, that dedication service. And so if you haven't, you know, I remind you, pray for him. We, we, we said we would. Pray for your marriage. Pray for the marriage of others. Is there someone you know and love that's struggling in their marriage? Why not make it a project to pray for them every day for the next 30 days and see if, see if you can see God intercede on their behalf? Pray for your church. Again, no show of hands, but uh, just a rhetorical question. Did you pray for me this morning? Um, big, or uh, you know, will you pray for me before next week? Uh, I think, or pray for the visitors who come or might come or who might be prevented from coming by you know, whatever circumstance. Um, Charles Spurgeon attributed the success of his ministry to the prayers of his church. And this next one's funny to me. A guy named Frank Laubach said, I'm very sensitive and I know whether you're praying for me. Uh, that seems like pressure. I'll go, I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm not that sensitive, but I, I still wish you would pray for me. I think that would, be, that would be a very good thing. Pray against temptation. That's in the Lord's Prayer. Pray against evil. The Bible says resist the devil and he'll flee. You know, we've, there are many more things we should pray for, but um, I'm using Foster's outline, so these are the ones he focused on. How are we going to pray? We're going to pray fervently. James, the book of James says, the fervent prayers of the righteous avail much. Pray honestly. Now, here's what I mean by that. If you, look at, if you look at the Psalms of David, if you look at Jeremiah, they were angry at times. It seems almost like he's just shaking his fist to heaven, and yet God met him and answered those prayers. You don't have to pretend to be more spiritual than you are in order to talk to God. You don't have to use fancy King James language. God communicates in modern English. Uh, or can understand your communication in modern English. And so oftentimes, and for those of us who've grown up in church, we can probably, especially if we grew up in, a, in a, a, a more traditional style church, we can remember the lofty prayers of the real spiritual old guys. Um, and, uh, and you don't have to talk that way. You don't have to use the religious jargon in order to get, get God's attention. And, and just go ahead and give up now on the idea of impressing God with how spiritual you are. Just the Bible teaches we should come to him as a child, and compared to God, we're all pretty puny kids. And let's just go to him honestly with our own words and thoughts, and, and, and he will meet us here. And then thankfully is a way we should pray. This one, um, I started hanging out with a group of guys about 15 years ago over in Orlando who just shocked me when they would pray thankfully for things that I wouldn't be thankful for. You know, God, I thank you for this broken lawnmower because now it's an opportunity for me to whatever, depend on you or, or and, and, and that just, that's, a, that's something that wars against my flesh. You know, my car breaks. It's not the first, I mean, my first reaction is, God, why me? I can't bear, you know, that would be my first reaction. But what I want to pray is, God, thank you for this opportunity to, to depend on you, to, to bless my mechanic. Um, who knows? You know, it's all yours, my time, my money. You know, if, if this is, if this is what you're calling me to, I want to do that. A, a good example from, for me in my own life this month is I've been spending a lot more time going to doctors and such and getting needles poked in me um, this, the last month. Nothing's really wrong with me, but they're doing a lot of testing. And, you know, that wouldn't be in my flesh. Just having people work on me and touch me isn't something I would be all that excited about. But I made a real commitment to use that time 
or to, to ask God to give me a chance to use that time to be a blessing. You know, I'm meeting a lot of strangers, people I don't meet regularly. And, and so I've tried not to be whiny or, or particularly cowardly um, in, in the face of that. And, uh, and I've tried to just be kind. I don't, I'm not you know, going in preaching, but I'm trying to just be kind and a blessing to the people I meet there. You know, Paul felt called to plant a church in Europe, and the first week he was there, they put him in jail. And what did he do? He planted a church in prison and, uh, and, then, and then left him. That's, you, that's the Philippian church. And so whatever circumstances we're in, if we can thank God for them and use those opportunities, I think we'll find that we can be effective for the kingdom. Then continually, we should pray continually. Paul said to pray without ceasing. I've used this image a bunch of times. Um, my former pastor, I think very insightfully, made the comment that he's the star of the movie that's playing in his head. And, and I, I, I love that image because I think that's true for so many of us, that we, there's this movie playing in our head and it's all about me. Um, but my question for you is, who's the director? of that movie. And that strikes me as what praying without ceasing is about. And I can, I, I can actually think of times where I've gone into a situation not knowing what to expect or kind of knowing what to expect and not sure what to do and sort of praying in advance, yeah, God, how do you want me to play this scene? You know, do you, am I supposed to go, go bold or, or walk small? You know, I, I, need, I need your help. And that strikes me as sort of looking to the director for guidance on the next scene. Um, and that's the kind of continual prayer that we're always looking back to, looking to God for, for his guidance, for his direction. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Uh, a lot of you could quote Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good passage, but look at what comes before. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. That's a very comforting promise. Remember that God is your Father, and he wants to give you good things. And yet, would it be a good example? Would it be an example of good parenting to never say no to your kids? To, you know, from the, from the most immature on up to always say yes and make sure they're never disappointed? Um, that's, that would not be good parenting, I don't think. And, and our Father is, is a very good Father. And, and so... It may not always be just what we think we want in our immaturity, but it's always our best. We can count on that. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. Our battle is spiritual. It's not against flesh and blood. And with practice, prayer can become a habit like breathing. You do it all the time, but it doesn't keep you from the other things you're doing. Would it make any sense if I said, you know, I'd like to finish the message now, but I've got to take a little break, do some breathing? Well, no, I'm going to keep breathing, and I'm going to finish the message too. Why? Because I can do both at the same time. Could you do that with prayer? I think you can. Uh, and who's this guy? Tom Kelly? Thomas Kelly, he thinks you can too. Let's look at how he says it. There's a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at once. On one level, we may be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of external affairs, but deep within, behind the scenes, at a profounder level. Is profounder really a word? I'm not so sure. We may also be in prayer and adoration, song and worship, and a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings. Now, this is what I'm going for. This, is, this strikes me as the way we can pray without ceasing. Uh, and, I, and I think I, I like... That was a very profound way he said that, I think. <laughs> Maybe the profoundest. Uh, so prayer changes things. 
can it change God? Now we sing a song, great is thy faithfulness, there is no shadow of turning with thee, thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. So there's a way in which we believe that you can't change God. Now, first of all, that's just a song. That's not scripture, but it's based on a scriptural principle, right? God does not change in his fundamental attributes. Yet, one of the fundamental attributes of God is that he loves to give good gifts to his children. And there are several examples in the Bible of God answering prayers. Abraham bargaining with God for the life of a city. Hezekiah crying out to God, and God gives him 15 more years. That's the passage we read to start the service. And so God does, answer, God does desire to answer our prayers. Prayer changes people. And what I found is prayer is much more effective than my own words or actions at changing people. Uh, anyone who's been married for a good long time is, has probably discovered this, and you've heard my advice that if you're doing battle with your spouse, or better yet, if your spouse is doing battle with God, God's going to win that battle. But if you jump in and try to start fighting God's fight for him, your spouse is going to quit fighting God and turn and fight you. And that's a battle maybe your spouse can win, uh, or at least fight you to a draw, and will distract your spouse from the ultimate battle, which is against God. You know, you're, you're going to be better off letting your words, keeping your words to yourself and just praying to God to intervene on your spouse's behalf. I think you'll find that to be more effective. Prayer changes circumstances. And then here's the one I guarantee People and circumstances may not change based on your prayers, at least not the way you want, but you will change. Your life will become more in tune with God's will, and you'll become more like Christ. So here's the assignment for this week. Let's pray. Pray for your needs, your children, your marriage, your church. Pray against temptation. Pray against evil. Let's pray now. Lord, Lord we thank you that you're a, a, a good father, and you desire to give us good things. Lord, I ask that you would give us the faith of a child so that we can turn to you expectantly for, for all of our needs and for so much besides. Lord, I ask that you'd help us to practice this. And Lord, if there's anyone in the congregation that, uh, um, that you're calling to a more fervent and active prayer life, which sounds like everyone, um, I ask that you would give us the grace to respond to you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.